You are listening to the City on a Hill Sermon Podcast. For more information about our church and to support this ministry, visit cityonahilldfw.com. Thank you. I don't know. They make us... I don't know who those two idiots are, but... You know, uh, I, I said this, I said it, what, two weeks ago. That's the benefit of working with younger peoples. They make us look way cooler than yeah. we are. <laughs> I'm 67 and I'm still cool. Man. Man, I, I, I put the C in cool, though. It's the coolest we've ever looked. Yeah, absolutely. Unbelievable. I want to say thank you uh, and I tell you how just how good it is to be here this morning. I uh, feel like Lazarus. Um, and I want to thank you for all of the care and concern that you reached out uh, by so many, all the means of communication that we have these days. Uh, the response from uh, God's people here has, was overwhelming uh, for Laura and I both as we dealt with COVID over the last about 17 days. And, uh, but I want to, and I don't want to take for a moment, I took a little longer than I wanted to in the first service. I want to share with, from you from my heart here this morning some words that I think are important to hear. Um, you know... When, when this thing hit me on a Tuesday evening at about 5 o'clock, it hit me like a Mack truck. I was sitting on a sofa, and I felt fine. I was working at my computer. In fact, I'm rewriting a book, and I'd written a book for a group, uh, Covenant Eyes, out of Michigan, and they're going to publish it this fall. And uh, I was rewriting another one, that uh, my Life Change Workbook, and I was feeling good. And, and I got up, and I walked to the refrigerator, and it was like a Mack truck hit me from the right side. My body did this, I went into violent, violent shakes. And I was 140 miles away from anyone, I was by myself. I was down at the ranch actually. And it was on a Tuesday afternoon. My wife had already tested positive on, on, on Sunday. My daughter was coming in to do her shifts at Cook from Colorado Springs. And so she needed to be upstairs. And, and so I got out of the house and it hit me like a ton of bricks. Mm. Next morning I drove home and we began this 15 to 18 day situation. I had not been vaccinated. I'd made the decision personally. It's not something I've encouraged people for or against. I just made the decision personally to not be vaccinated. Laura was not vaccinated, although she was planning to be. She was checking on her antibodies because she thought she'd really actually already been sick. And uh, but, but by the time that happened, before she was able to go on and do that, uh, she got sick. And so we both in, went into this thing without having vaccination. And I, and I want to share a few things with you um, that I have learned over the last 12 years, and as well as over this COVID thing, um, that each individual has to be your own doctor. You have to be your own medical professional. You're the best that you have. And I began to learn that when this tumor showed up in my brain 12 years ago. And I began to see these doctors that had all kinds of titles after their name, and they were well-meaning, and they were incredibly brilliant, genius individuals, but they were experimenting on me. <laughs> Literally, they were, and, and most of them were honest about that. And, and so I began to do my own research. I began to do my own study. One of them almost killed me in 2011, and he was very well, he's a very well-known doctor. And in the process of all of this, I, I said, I've, I've got to figure this out. I've got to learn as much as I possibly can. And, and what that did for me was it enabled me, when I found the right therapy, I knew it. Because I wasn't walking in just taking someone's word who has all kinds of education that I deeply respect. 
But I had questions that I knew how to ask, and I knew the right questions to ask, and I knew when they were blowing smoke in my face. And I would tell them, I think you're blowing smoke in my face. And, and, and just quite frankly, this is my life. It's not yours. And they said, yes, sir, you're exactly right. It is your life. And I said, so I need you to tell me some truth, and I need some questions answered, and I want straight answers from you. I don't want, I don't want bull. And when I had a neurosurgeon look me in the face and tell me the truth, it was like the Spirit of God just said to me, this is him. This is the one. And I put myself under his care. And I believe it saved my life because another doctor was just about to kill me with the drugs that he had me on. And it wasn't something that drugs would ever fix. And so I did the same thing with COVID from day one. From the day this thing hit, I started trying to find out the truth out there. And it was very hard to find. It's very difficult to find because much of it has been covered up. But I, I, I educated myself and I made a, a decision about what I was going to do if I got sick. And when, when it hit me, I had already decided that the number one key is that you get whatever therapy you're going to get, you get it immediately. Mm-hmm. You don't wait. You don't pass go. You don't collect $200. You get it immediately ASAP because of all of the therapies that are out there. The number one thing that they are all saying is the quicker the intervention, the better the help. And it's really sad because when, when Derek got it back in November, it was back in the time when doctors were simply saying, go home and treat the symptoms. If you get real bad, go to the hospital. That's yeah. about all that they knew. My doctor, yeah, when I tested positive, she said, uh, well, you're positive. And she goes, so I'm sorry. And that was, the very <laughs> same doctor, that was the very same doctor that treated me ultimately, but that's all she knew. That's all that anybody knew. And, and, and so, you know, so there are multiple therapies now and whatever you as your own doctor make the decision in your research to, to go with that, then go with that. I, I have the privilege of knowing medical professionals all over the country. I know a bunch of them here locally, but also in my speaking around the nation uh, in churches, I've, I've gotten to know a lot of medical professionals, medical doctors that have kind of uh, just taken a, a, a connection to me. And over social media, I had doctors all over the country contact me that I've met in churches where I've taught and where I've, I've spoken and done my workshop. And, and one of them wanted to fly me to Reno, Nevada to, to treat me because he said, I, I can help you. I, I know I can, I can save your life. And, and, you know, and I appreciated that because all of them had deep concern, Christian concern, but also concern for the work that I had poured into them and, and, and appreciation for that. And, and I, but the thing that was interesting to me, every one of them has a different therapy. Every one of them. Every local one that I know well, and both of these, one from Nevada and one from Colorado, both of them approach this with a different therapy. And that's not bad news, folks. That's good news. That's really good news because they, if they, we've got multiple ways that we can come at this thing medically now. And, and everyone who does a particular therapy, they're convinced that that therapy is the best. And I'm, 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 I'm glad that they do because that means that they're getting positive effects in people's lives. But where we are now with this thing is we're a place where there's a lot of different ways. There's several different ways that you can come at this thing. But the number one thing, none of them have much efficacy if you don't do it ASAP. And I think pretty much all doctors agree with that. The earlier intervention, so if you get sick... If you start feeling, you go, you go and you get it, and you get it today. Don't, don't wait till tomorrow. You get it today. My, I'm 67 years old. My wife has severe upper respiratory problems. She always has. So we were two individuals at very high risk. And I'm thankful for the intervention that my doctor gave because the day of, I went on her therapy that she put me on. And my wife did two days before because she tested two days before I did. And 
Although this has been hell, this thing is not anything to play with. This is serious, serious stuff. I, I can honestly say I had a mild case and my wife had a mild case, even though the fatigue is still here. And I believe because immediate therapy was in, invention, immediate intervention happened for us. Even with my wife's upper respiratory issues and problems, she was at high risk. Her blood oxygen content never got below 95. That's about normal. It's about where mine was. Never did go below that. Had fever for four or five days. Extreme fatigue. Feeling like I'd been hit by a Mack truck. But never in danger of hospitalization. Never feeling in danger for our lives. And I think that was because of early intervention and quick therapy. And so I just want to say to you as your pastor, as one of your pastors... Uh, your teaching pastor now, I guess, to be uh, correct. Uh, and I would say to you, you know, if you choose to get vaccinated, then go and get vaccinated. If you choose not to, uh, then, then make your choice. If you want to wear 15 masks, then wear 15 masks. If you don't want to wear a mask, don't wear a mask. But you be your own doctor. You don't let anybody shame you or guilt you or, or push you into anything. But do your own homework, and then you go before God, and you find a medical practitioner that you trust, and you take that therapy, and you take it immediately. And then you stay with it. And I believe we'll have a whole lot better results. That's just from my heart to you. Um, it's hard to find the truth out there. It's very hard to find the truth out there. Much of the truth has been covered up. There's just recently a study that came out of Israel this past week. 700 people. Israel is the gold standard in clinical therapy. Randomized, double blinds, all of the things they did. 700,000 patients. You need to go out there and see if you can find it. I looked and I could only find one source of it. It is basically being suppressed. But it is the gold standard of, of this whole issue about therapies, about antibodies, and about all this stuff. So be your own doctor, folks. Be your own doctor. Um, that's just my word to you. And, and, and I, I'm thankful to be here today. I honestly am. I'm thankful that my wife is, is good and healthy. And, and, and I attribute that to having a caring doctor that uh, was willing to uh, swim upstream and then we both said, whatever you tell us to do, we'll do because we trust you. And, 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 and I think that's what you have to have. But we didn't, that wasn't blind trust on my part or her part. We've done our research. We did our homework. And so I would encourage you to as well do that. Because uh, how many of you have been infected with COVID? Okay. About a third of the room. Before probably six more months, about, about another third of you will probably raise your hand and say you did. This, this train's coming, folks. This train is coming. Am I right, Haley? This train is coming. She's a nurse practitioner. And uh, her doctor has a therapy and I'm thankful for, for what they do and the lives they're saving and people they're helping. Uh, but we also have to be our own doctors uh, because we can then make God-led decisions in this thing. It's, that was free, okay? That was free. And I, 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 I love you and appreciate you and, and everything that you are and everything you stand for. I stand for truth, folks. That's all I want. I don't want anybody's agenda. I don't want the medical bureaucrats' agenda. I don't want the politicians' agenda. I don't want my doctor's agenda. I want the truth. And, and, and if I haven't done my own homework to find the truth, then how am I going to recognize it when I hear it, when I see it from a medical practitioner? Probably not. I'm just going to take a blind faith. Well, you got the degree, so go ahead and did it. I had a doctor with, a, with lots of degrees near to kill me in 2011 because of this thing in my head. I decided, no, no, never again. Never again. I'll be my own doctor. Well, when you get up into, this is another just side note, but when you get up into higher education, specifically postgraduate research, the postgraduate academic world, both of which James and I are engaged in, what you find out is that expert practitioners rarely agree with one another. 
The idea that there's like this general consensus on, on a, almost anything is, is kind of nonsense. That's the whole point of scholarship, is that we're always challenging one another and challenging thoughts and ideas. And so the, the concept that there might be another thought or approach to something is not shocking at all. In fact, it's par for the course. It should be in science and in academics, and, and that's part, been part of what's been troublesome in this thing, is that everything but the established narrative that the medical bureaucracy, as well as the politics in, 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 in uh, uh, Washington, began with the hypothesis that this is how we're going to beat that pandemic. As more information came in that challenged that hypothesis, they wouldn't change the hypothesis. And they're still fighting against that because that challenges the original hypothesis. But that's the entire way that academics and science works. You, do, you come up with a hypothesis and you do the study. And if the study reveals the faultiness of your hypothesis, you change your hypothesis and you change the directions you're going. And in, in medical science, in this issue, it's been very hard for those people who have invested so much in a particular hypothesis and narrative that this is the only way that we're going to beat this thing is a particular way, and I'm not even going to say what that is, um, most of you know what I'm talking about, then when information comes that challenges that hypothesis, when it begins to get squelched, then immediately my BS meter goes off the charts. <laughs> immediately, I go, why are you squelching that? That is not the scientific method, and that is not, that is not intellectual honesty. That That's is not intellectual true. integrity. Yep. And, and so I realize that everyone's got an agenda. You need to realize everyone's got an agenda, even if they don't even know, even if it's a good agenda. Everyone's got an agenda. They have a hypothesis. You have to also have an agenda, and your agenda is that you're going to do your homework. That's right. And that you're going to be your own best advocate. So that as you do interact with these people that are incredibly brilliant and, and are doing everything that they can to save your life and save other lives, realize that they are not God and they do not have all of the truth. And if you have not done your own search for truth, how are you going to recognize truth? How is the Spirit of God going to say to you, this is truth? I, I'm, glad, I'm thankful there are about four therapies out right now that are working for, for people. And, and I just say, you just get one. You decide and you get it and you go with it and you follow it. And praise God, we'll get through this thing. Amen. Amen. Hey, I'm glad you're back. It's good to be back. Yeah. I'm, I'm telling you. And, and I hear that Derek did a halfway reasonable job. Uh, you know, after doing this yeah, here. Yeah, look at them in the back. Yeah, it's okay. It's yeah, sort okay, of okay. all right. Yeah. You know, it's, and it's such a, you know, while I was out for these two weeks, uh, you know, used to, well, for, for most years that I was doing this by myself, it, as far as the teaching on Sunday morning. Uh, you know, if I had to be out for a couple of weeks, I never knew what I was going to find when I came back. Oof. Seriously. He's not lying. I mean, I just, I never knew. Are we going to even have a church? <laughs> you know, uh, who's gone crazy? Who yeah. went nuts oh. during that period of time? And, and it was so comforting to me to be able to just focus on health, focus on my wife, focus on doing what we need to do, and knowing that the, God's people were in good hands with Derek and, and our staff. And, and I'm so thankful for that. That is such a relief for me. Uh, as, as someone who's poured myself into this. Let's talk this morning, and, and if you'll give us an extra five minutes, we'll try. We did it in the first yeah. service that way, just about, maybe not, but close to it. 
Um, I just, I felt like I needed to share that with you because so many people have asked me questions about this. They've asked, what decision are you going to make? And I say, I'm not telling you my decision because I, you got to make your own decision and I don't want the responsibility for the decision you make, whether it's about vaccines, whether it's about masks. I've never not given people my opinion. I said, you do your work and you decide and I will support you in whatever decision you make. Even in my own household, my wife was going to be vaccinated. I had made the decision not to be. That's her decision. I never tried to talk her out of it. I said, baby, you got to do what you got to do, and I got to do what I got to do. And I believe that that's the way that this thing should be approached. Radical discipleship. We're going to begin a short series this morning uh, about that. What does it mean to be a disciple of Jesus? To be a disciple of Jesus, quite frankly, means to be a radical. By the way, my daughter is a nurse practitioner as well, and she and I disagree. Okay? <laughs> so go figure. Okay? Uh, I love her. I respect her. Uh, I don't know if she loves me, and I don't know if she respects me, but but uh, but I'm, we have disagreement, and I, we've come to different places on some things. I'm fairly sure she, she loves you. I think she does. I hope she does. Mm-hmm. She's 39 years old. If she hadn't figured it out by now, I don't think there's a whole lot of hope. <laughs> anyway, the truth is that to be a disciple of Jesus, we're going all over the charts, yeah. aren't we? To be a disciple of Jesus is to be a radical. Jesus was a radical, and if you follow Jesus, then you're going to be radical. Because if you're following Jesus, you're going to be walking in some radical footprints. He was a radical in everything he did, everything he said. People heard Jesus' teachings and said, who is this man? No one has ever spoken. We've never heard someone speak like this. He's radical. Jesus was radical in how he lived. He was so focused on the Father's will that it put him in constant conflict with worldly ideologies around him and even with the religious ideologies of the religious leaders of his day. He condemned those who worshipped their rituals and their religious traditions. Jesus walked upon this earth and he turned it literally upside down as only a radical can do. Jesus was radical even, even how he died. The sovereign God could have caused this sacrifice of his son In any way he chose, but he chose the way of the cross, the way of a common criminal, the worst death that one could be put to in the Roman Roman Empire. And so he was radical even in how he died. And if we are to follow him, he calls us to radical discipleship. The word disciple is the Greek word methetes, and it's used a number of ways in the New Testament. One way it's used is anyone who's being trained in anything. You were called a, a mathetes. You were called a disciple. It was kind of often used as a synonym for an apprentice. A second way it is used is to refer to the 12 who walked with Jesus. The scripture says he called 12. Sometimes they're called 12 disciples. Sometimes they're just called the disciples. So it's used to refer to those original 12 that were with him. Sometimes it's used in the scripture to refer as a synonym for just being a Christian. Because you see, right after Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, the coming of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost, people weren't called Christians. That word wasn't even used. That wasn't used until in Antioch in Acts chapter 11, verse 26, years, decades after the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. And Paul was already on the missionary journeys. It was there when they first were called Christians in Antioch. And so till then, it was just simply that they were called disciples or they were called people of the way. And then the fourth way it's used is the way that Jesus used it. When Jesus used the word, the Greek word methetes, that we translate uh, as a follower or disciple, Jesus infused this word with much deeper meaning than ever anyone had ever used it. It's much more than just being, uh, you know, an apprentice or a learner or a follower. It, it's much more than that. He went beyond just the idea of an apprenticeship. In fact, about ten times, Jesus said, if you, and you fill in the blank, then you're truly my disciples. 
if you, fill in the blank, are truly my disciples. In other words, Jesus kept infusing more and more into this what it meant to be a disciple. And he said, well, you, a disciples are identified if you, fill in the blank, keep my commandments as one of them, then truly you are a disciple of mine. So Jesus dived deep into this concept of discipleship and what Jesus came out with that to be a disciple of Jesus was to be radical because Jesus himself was a radical. Now, so here's the question, what do disciples do? What does it mean to be a disciple? And we're gonna talk about that this morning. Derek is gonna open up and say, one of the things it means to be a radical disciple is that you must leave and cleave. John chapter 12, verse 26, Jesus says, If anyone serves me, let him follow me. And where I am, there shall my servant be also. If you search, I, I did a search this week on how many times Jesus says, follow me. You want to know how many times? No, I actually, I don't know. I, I'm asking you. There were too many. I, I couldn't count. I, you didn't have time this week to figure them all there out. There were too many of them. The, following Jesus is central to the idea to being a disciple, so much so that you, you could say it this way, you cannot be a disciple of Jesus and not follow him. They're the same thing. It's synonymous with one another. So following Jesus is an important aspect of being a radical disciple, but there's another side of this command as well that is equally important. Let me give you a truth. Radical discipleship is not only a call to follow Jesus, it's a call to stop following everything else. <laughs> yeah, that's right. It's a, it's a call to not only take up the cross, but to put down everything else, to lay down my life, to lay down my cares and concerns, to lay down my priorities. And we see it in the early disciples. Peter did not simply just start following Jesus. He put down the fishing nets. Matthew did not simply start following Jesus. He put down the tax books. Paul did not simply start following Jesus. He put down a very lucrative and robust religious career. Yeah. You cannot stop or start following Jesus until you stop following everything else. In other words, we leave and cleave. In Genesis chapter 2, verse 24, this is where we see this terminology come up for the very first time. God says to Adam, he says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Our very fun fundamentalist brothers and sisters who love the KJV, that, that translation translates this, they must leave and cleave. And he made a snipe at me this morning. Didn't they translate the uh, King James Version of when you were a young yeah, when seminary you, yeah, student? Yeah, absolutely. It was 250 freaking years <laughs> <Yeah>. ago. <laughs> I think not. No, no. It was longer than that. 1611. You're right. 1611 was the well, authorized, yeah. At one time in my life, it was 250 years ago. <laughs> oh, no. I kind of got stuck in time. What is happening? What does it mean to leave and cleave? Does it mean when God says this to Adam, is what he's saying, you need to just pack up and never see anyone else again, Every, all your whole family. Husbands, when you leave and cleave, you never get to talk to mom and dad anymore. You leave, you get out of there, you have no more connection. No, that's not what he's saying at all. He's saying when you get married, every other relationship gets demoted. Your wife becomes the top priority. She becomes numero uno. Not your daddy, not your mommy, not your drinking buddies, not your boss, not your hobbies. Everything comes after her. You leave it all. You leave and cleave. And in the same way, when you become a disciple of Jesus, a follower of Jesus, he becomes the priority in your life that trumps every other priority, even over your spouse. This is one of the reasons why, why the, the scripture is so clear about becoming equally yoked with the person that you're married. Because if not, there's a very real probability that you are going to at some point have to choose Jesus over that other person. And it's going to be very difficult. 
Discipleship is hard because it forces a hierarchy of values and priorities. And when Jesus is at the very top of that hierarchical value, everything else takes a back seat. You leave and cleave. Now, let's talk about this a little more in depth. I want to give you three uh, aspects of leaving and cleaving, okay? Number one, it's a choice. It's a choice. Notice that Jesus says, if anyone serve me, let him follow me. There's a choice implied here. By saying the word if, he is implying you may not follow him, but if you do, you're going to serve him. If you're going to follow him, let him serve me, he says. So you have a choice to follow him. Every time Jesus calls someone to follow him, he uses this terminology, if. What that means is, listen, you can't force someone to do it. You cannot coerce someone into following Jesus. Historically, anytime Christianity has been forced upon a people, it has worked out very poorly. We need, we, we need look no further than Rome. The beginning of imperial Christianity, the great turd of Christian <laughs> history. I knew I can, you were going to say that. And I can say because can, we studied that word in, the, in seminary, yeah. and, and I knew it was going to come out. Scubala. Yeah. <laughs> Scubala. So, Greek word for so turd. Understand, you have to decide every day. Today, I'm going to follow Christ, folks. Today, I've, I've had COVID. So yeah, that's his. That's his. He's had a tumor. Yeah, he's I've had been, COVID for twelve years. I've been saying, you know, I got a brain tumor. He's on medicine. Day. Yeah, no, I'm on medication. Okay, I've had I COVID. Sense, I sense a trend here. <laughs> there is a trend. I'm here. always wanting to blame something else. Always something else. <laughs> you got to make a choice every day. Am I going to follow Jesus or not? Am I going to honor Christ with my life and my decisions or not? Let me tell you, the goal of your Christian faith is to be made more into the image of Jesus. Amen. That's the goal. That is, that's what we're shooting after in this life, to become more like Christ. My hope is that five years from now, I will be more like Jesus than I am today. That is my hope. I, I am hoping, and, I'm, and I, I think I'm, I'm right on this, that I am more like Jesus today than I was five years ago. But let me, just, let me be as honest with you as I can, okay? And this is important for you to hear this. At the end of this year, you are not going to be more like Jesus unless you choose to be today and tomorrow and the next day. So many people come to faith with this assumption that Jesus is just going to sprinkle magical Jesus dust on me and I'm going to become more like him as I go on this life. It's going to be like on autopilot. That's not how it works. It doesn't happen that way. In 1 Corinthians chapter 3, Paul calls the believers there in, in Corinth infants in the faith. You know why? <laughs> Babies. They were as mature as they had chosen to be. They had not grown because they had not chosen to grow. When you leave and cleave, it's a choice. Secondly, it's a commitment. It's not only something you choose, but it's something that you commit yourself to. Now, commitment is a very scary word in our culture today. We don't like the idea of commitment. We don't like the idea of being committed to someone or something else. It's why the average age in America to getting married is older than it has ever been. It's why the average age in America for a length of career is shorter than it's ever been because people are growing up in a society and a culture that despises the idea of commitment rather than lifts it up. And you want to know why? Because with commitment comes what? Accountability and responsibility. That's exactly right. You're responsible now if you're committed. You're held accountable now if you're committed. And we don't want accountability. We hate accountability. It's one of the reasons why we emphasize so strongly here church membership. Now, you can come here and you can engage in the ministries and we will love you. We will not treat you any differently on a day-to-day -day basis if you never choose to be a member. So please hear me when I say that. 
Last time I talked about church membership, I, I, I said something that was, I, I think, misunderstood. Uh, I, I am not saying you're a second-class citizen if you're not a member. But let me tell you something. Church membership is important because it demonstrates something about rejecting the immaturity that says, I don't want commitment, and embracing the maturity that says, I want accountability. Amen. You're saying, I want to be shepherded. I want to be pastored by you. As your senior pastor, this, this may come as a shock to some of you, I am not responsible for every one of you in this room. I'm responsible for what I say to every one of you in this room, but I'm not responsible to every one of you in this room. I'm responsible for those who have said, I'm going to place myself under and submit to the leadership and the authority of this church. I want to be shepherded. I want to be pastored. I want to be held accountable. Amen. I'm going to become a member. Mm -hmm. Those are the people I'm responsible for. Everything else is just shacking up. Everything else is just shacking up. Yeah, maybe I go here. Maybe I go there sometimes. This, this place has a great Wednesday night class. Sometimes I go over here. If that's the way you're living your life, then go back and listen to last week's message because there's something there for you as well. Uh, but, but understand, that is not a mature way of looking at being a part of the local bride of Christ. It's why we have Discovery 101. It's why we, we have you go through a four-week process before you're ever able to become a member because as important as it is for you to, or for us to know who you are, it's as important for you to know who we are. That's right. We don't want you entering into this flippantly. This is a big deal. We, we believe that this is where accountability happens. It's where growth happens, but it's a commitment. Let me ask you, when was the last time someone challenged you? When was the last, some, last time someone challenged you in your walk with Jesus? Or do you have anyone? Or better, let me ask you this. When was the last time you allowed someone, <laughs> you enlisted someone to challenge you? Oftentimes, I find it's not a lack of people being willing to hold you accountable as much as it is a lack of willingness on your end to be held accountable. Look, let's just stop pretending here and get real for a minute. If you are committed to Jesus Christ, the risen Lord and Savior, you got to be accountable for it. That's right. Who is telling you hard things? Who is challenging you and calling you out in your life? Who is calling you out when you miss church? Who is telling you you need to get your butt up a little earlier and come to Bible study? Who is telling you you need to get your kids here on Sunday morning as well, not only for youth group, but for service? Do, we, do these things matter to us? Are we committed here? Are we being held accountable? It's one of the reasons why I put so much time in the Bible study material, because I believe it matters. Do you think it matters? Does it matter to you to grow in discipleship in the knowledge of the Word of God? Who is asking you those kinds of things other than us? Because we can ask you, and you're not, I mean, this is a one-way conversation, right? So you're, you're not really answering. <laughs> no, I get to, I get to you know, interject. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I, I, guess, I know what they're thinking. But it's still one way. I'm talking for them. <laughs> Number three, so it's a choice, it's a commitment. Number three, it's a relationship. And this is, this is perhaps the most important thing, right? Every time Jesus says, follow me, he ends up saying something like, and I will be with you, and there I will be. Even in the Great Commission, he says, go, make disciples, baptize them, teach them, and behold, what? I will be with you always until the end of the age. You see, discipleship, it's not about rules. It's not about religious rituals. It's not about being morally superior. It's about relationship with Jesus Christ. Now, are there disciplines in our faith? Absolutely. Prayer, worship, studying God's Word. We talked about welcome, Discovery 201. Those are important practices that we want you to learn. But what is the point of all those if it's not to grow in your intimacy with the Lord Jesus? It's always going to come back to that relationship. And this is where discipleship can go really wrong because we can agree all day long that it's a choice to follow him, that it's a commitment to follow him, but when we lose sight of the fact that it is a relationship with Jesus, what happens is I become more prideful, more self-righteous, and more heartless to those who are not as committed as I am. And you know what that sounds a lot like? 
Pharisees. Yeah, when it ceases to be relationship, it becomes a ritual. Absolutely. And when we get ritualistic, we start comparing our rituals to everybody else's rituals, and that's when we become Pharisees. Absolutely. And what did Jesus say about Pharisees? Matthew 23, 27, 28. For you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. Now, why did he say that? They had made the choice to know the scriptures. They were committed to doing the thing. Why did he say that? Matthew 15, 8. He says, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. You see, radical discipleship, being a, a, an all-in Christian, if you will, means leaving and cleaving. It's a choice that you make every single day of your life. It is a commitment that you make that you are to be held accountable for. But more than anything, it is a relationship that you enter into that defines everything else. Radical disciples leave and cleave. Next, they love and lift. Now, I love the fact how, how this sequence is here because we've talked about this choice, this commitment, and then we talk about, well, what is it ultimately that we must choose? What is it that ultimately causes our direction? And in Luke chapter 14, verse 26, is the most troubling verse in all of the Word of God. You might, might want to listen up when someone says that. This is the most troubling verse in all of the Scripture. Jesus says, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father, his mother, and children, and brothers, and sisters, and yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Now, folks, that's, that's, troubling, that's a troubling verse. If you, it really is troubling if you don't even go beneath the surface and figure out what is it that Jesus is saying. Is Jesus really saying, is Jesus teaching hate here? Is Jesus really telling us that we are to literally hate all of those other relationships? And if we don't hate those relationships, we cannot be his disciple? We cannot follow him? Well, obviously not, because if Jesus, if that's what Jesus was saying, then he contradicted the fourth commandment of the, in the Old Testament to honor your father and mother. He contradicted his other teachings in other places about all of these other relationships. So what's going on? What is happening here? Jesus is using a literary device that was common in, in Hebraic comedy as well as in Hebraic teaching of his day that Jesus often used that is so exaggerated, that is so outlandish that it's very difficult to miss the point that is being made. That literary device is called hyperbole. Hyperbole is such extreme exaggeration that it cuts through all of the gray area and you can clearly see the principle or the truth that is being taught. Jesus often used it. Remember this, the, uh, the story where Jesus said, you know, well, why don't you deal with the, the uh, uh, log in your own eye before you try to get the speck out of your brother's eye? Now, that's hyperbole, obviously, because it's not even... It's, I guess it's possible to have a speck, but it's, <laughs> it's not possible to have a, a telephone pole sticking out of your, your eye. But, but the point is very clearly made, is it not? When Jesus compares that little speck I'm trying to worry about my brother's eye, and I got this big old telephone pole sticking out of my own, and I don't even acknowledge it. You know, Jesus, in other words, keep your side of the street clean, first of all. And hyperbole makes that very clear for us. Jesus said it's easier for a rich man or it's harder for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God than for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. Now what's he saying? Is it impossible? I mean we know that camels can't go through the eyes of needles and so does that mean that it is impossible for anybody who's wealthy to enter the kingdom? 
No, Jesus is making a point that is very, very difficult because that individual has so many other loves. That individual already has developed so many priorities and so many commitments that it's hard. And it's just, and, and so he uses hyperbole. You know, you, you missed an opportunity here. I know I did, probably. When, when Jesus says, if your eye causes you to stumble, pluck it out. <laughs> and then be blind. <laughs> You're wearing an iPad. I mean, you could have really, anyway. I guess I could have. Thank you for that. I appreciate it. So Luke chapter 14, verse 26, Jesus is using hyperbole and he's talking about hate. But folks, get this. He's not teaching hate. He's teaching the exact opposite. Jesus is teaching about love. Yes. He's teaching about how we are to love. He says a disciple of Jesus is to love in such a way that it is radical. Now, what does that look like? Well, first of all, the first point he's making in Luke is that a disciple is to love the discipler. He's to love the disciple. Basically what Jesus is saying is if you are going to be my disciple, all of these other relationships hyper, hyperbolically must fade into insignificance and mean nothing in comparison to your commitment and your love for me. You, I must be your only priority relationship in, in, in your life. Now, folks, when we hear that, that becomes difficult for us to understand. How does that work itself out in daily life? Because we're having to make that working out in every decision of every life. I mean, you, you, every day, you love your spouse as you should because Jesus commands us to love our mates. We love our children as we, as we should. But what Jesus is saying is none of those relationships can ever be allowed, if you're going to be my disciple, can never be allowed to take priority over the love that you have for me. That's right. Now, like most spiritual truths, this teaching sounds counterintuitive, it's very troubling, and it also even sounds selfish. It just sounds downright selfish, doesn't it? For Jesus to be saying, in comparison to how you love your wife, it's got to look like hate. In comparison to how you love your children, your love for me, it's gotta, that's got to look like hate. Now, when we look at that from a human perspective, we go, oh, Jesus, that's just not right. There's just something that's wrong about that. And it's because we really don't understand what Jesus is really saying. And what he's really saying, this is actually a word of hope, not a word of discouragement. That's right. Because Jesus is not teaching hate. Jesus is teaching us how to really love. Now think about this for just a moment. If Christ Jesus, if you are so radically committed in your love relationship with Christ Jesus above all others, what is that going to do to your relationships to them. It's going to enable you to love them more than you ever could by any human ingenuity that you might have. A husband that says to his wife, I love you, but in comparison to my love for Jesus Christ and my devotion to him, my love for you must look like hate. What is that going to do? That's going to cause that husband to be able to love that wife with a depth of love and affection that he could never come up with on his own because under the loveship of Jesus Christ, he's going to love her the way that Jesus tells him to love his wife. Amen. With your children, 
You're going to be able to be devoted and committed to them in a way and make decisions that you would never be able to do so on your own with a husband and his faithfulness to his wife. Think about this, women. Don't be challenged by a husband that loves Jesus with all of his heart. That's the greatest security that you can ever possibly have in the faithfulness of your husband. Because if he has so devoted himself and submitted himself to the love of Christ and faithfulness to Christ, he's going to be able to be faithful to, to you in ways that he could never generate himself in his own human ability. Are you getting what Jesus is saying here? Jesus is saying, love me, and then what do you do? Then you love everyone else the way I tell you to do it. You've heard of this hierarchy of priorities and values that we often talk about. Christians talk about it because it sounds very spiritual, and it's totally impractical and never works. We say, well, my priorities in life are three. Christ first, family second, work third. We've all heard it. Most of us have said it. I've said it. It's wrong. It's, it's wrong. Let me, let me just give you a theological word. It's stupid. It's stupid because it doesn't work. It's stupid because it's man-made. It's not biblical. It sounds good, but in reality, it's fraught through with all kinds of problems. Why? Because life isn't lived according to formulas like that. You can't do life according to formulas. And because always, every day in life, there are going to be things that are going to happen that are going to put these priorities in conflict and in competition with one another, and you'll never really know how to negotiate the decisions of daily life. In truth, what God's Word teaches is only one priority, and that is, Jesus, you must love me. You must love only me, and then you must love others the way that I show you, the way that I empower you, and the way that I lead you to love them. That's now, right. that is what Jesus is talking about. That's right. And that's why discipleship is radical, folks. To be a disciple means to be radical. It's not, okay, well, Jesus is just one another in the list of my priorities. No, he's the only one I've got. And if he's the only priority I have, then everything else in my life is just do the rest of my life the way he tells me to do it. And he tells me to love my wife more than I love myself. He tells me to sacrifice for my children. He tells me to do all these things, but I'm not ever going to be able to do that to the fullness until I love him. It's radical discipleship. Second of all, the disciple loves other disciples. I'm going to go very quickly with this. Now get this. The disciple not only loves the discipler, that's Christ, but radical discipleship means that we love other disciples. Now, folks, let's just talk about this very practically for just a moment. If you'll give us till 10 minutes to 12, maybe we'll get through. Okay? If not, you're just going to stay until we quit. <laughs> you say, I'll show you. I'll just get up and walk out of this place. I've been thrown out of better places than this. I have too. John chapter 13, verse 34 through 35, Jesus said to the disciples, a new command I give you. In other words, Jesus said, listen up, man, you never heard this. I'm fixing to give you something radical. A new command I give you, love one another as I have loved you, so that you must love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Now notice, to understand this verse, we often skip over this. The key, the heart of this verse is a little phrase there, as I have loved you. Jesus says we are to love one another as he's loved us. In other words, if he's a priority, if our, his, our love is to him, then how do we love others? He says, you love them the way I've loved you. Mm. There you go. There you're getting it, okay? Love him, love the disciples, but then love other disciples. Well, how do we love other disciples? Jesus says, you love one another like I've loved you. So the model for loving disciples is how Christ has loved you. Ask yourself this question. How does he love you? 
This is not difficult. This is not difficult to find out in Scripture, folks. It's on every page of the New Testament. Over and over, this is how Jesus says he's shown how he loves us. He humbled himself to service. There it is, folks. There's, there's the key. That's how Jesus loves. Jesus emptied himself to serve us. That was the expression of how he loved us. Now, it began in the incarnation when Jesus came to be human flesh. Philippians 2 talks about this. He says, we're supposed to have the same attitude in us that Jesus had. Well, what's that? What was the attitude when he came in flesh? Who, though he was in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be held on to, but what did he do? He emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. So Jesus started this whole expression of how he loves by serving in the very incarnation from divinity into human flesh. And then in John chapter 13, Jesus says something that astounded the disciples. And he did something to show them the extent of this servanthood of love that it was expression of how Jesus loved us and how he expects us to love one another. It says, John chapter 13, verse 1, Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart, in other words, he knew he was about to be arrested and crucified, to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own, in other words, those disciples, he showed them the extent of his love. Jesus is about to demonstrate, this is how I love you. And then he's going to say, now you love one another just the same way. Verse 4, he says, it says he laid aside his robe. He poured water into a bowl. He took a towel. And he began to wash their dirty, nasty, stinky, smelly feet. <laughs> this was the job of a lowly servant. Not a king of kings. Not the Lord of lords. But here's Jesus. He said, look, I'm going to do this. I'm going to do this as an example for you. And then I want you to love one another in this exact same way. And Jesus took his robe of divinity off and he took the towel of servanthood mm. and he washed their feet. In fact, this was so radical and it was so outlandish that Peter began to say, no, Jesus, you can't do this. And then verse seven, Jesus says, what I am doing to you, you don't understand right now, but afterward you will understand. And then Jesus explained in verse 12 and following. He says, do you understand what I've done? He's asking this question, do you understand? And they go, duh, I don't think so. <laughs> Obviously, we don't. He says, okay, here it is. You call me Lord and teacher, and you're right, for so I am. In other words, he didn't denigrate himself of who he was. He was Lord. He said, you're right. You've got that right. Then the, here comes the lesson. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet... You ought also to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. We're, we're to say, how are we to love one another? Jesus says we are to, you're to love one another as I have loved you. Now Jesus is showing, I'm showing you how I love you by serving you. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to have towels passed out, and uh, you're going to take your shoes. Well, and, and you know, foot-washing Baptists have done this and, and turned it into a ritual, which cheapens it so much. I don't know that it's bad to have foot-washing services, but it become, they've turned it into an ordinance, and that's not what Jesus is saying. Jesus is not saying, do this every time you gather together. Jesus is doing this as a life example of his servanthood that started at the incarnation yeah. to serve one another. Yeah. You know, unless you've been under a rock this past week, You've heard of what is going on in Afghanistan. 
But you haven't heard the whole story because the whole story is not really interesting. Interesting to our world. It's not interesting to our media. It's not even interesting to our government or our State Department. They could care less. Do you realize that the Church of Jesus Christ has been exploding in the last two decades in Afghanistan? Something you never hear about. The gospel is, is taking root in Afghanistan. And these are not Americans that have relocated to Afghanistan. These are Afghanis that were born and raised Muslims who forsake that and turn to Jesus Christ. And to do, do that in a Muslim country is a sentence of death. Particularly in a Sharia law, as the Taliban interprets it. As a matter of fact, the Christians in Afghanistan are targeted not just to be put to death by the Taliban, but to be burned alive. That's how they treat Christians. And this is what they intend to do with Christians. So there's a great burgeoning group of brothers and sisters in Christ in Afghanistan right now. Glenn Beck, who is a conservative talk show host, politically conservative, but also a very conservative, committed believer. Glenn Beck, you probably don't know this because nobody's talking about it. What Glenn Beck did is he saw those brothers and sisters in Christ over there. He began to raise money. He put a million dollars of his own money into this thing, raised 20-something million dollars, and created an airlift to go into Afghanistan and began to rescue brothers and sisters in Christ who had the sentence of death. As of last Thursday, he had taken over 5,000 Afghani Christians out of that nation, out from under a death sentence. Now, the media is not talking about it. Our state government, our state department has even tried to get in his way. Our government could care less. The Taliban could care less. Most people on the planet could care less. But here at Glenn Beck, he was aware of this. He had the means, he had the ability, and he believed, I've got to go, and I've got to do everything that I can do. Now, why did, why did Glenn Beck do this? Why did these people do this? For, because of love of disciples. These are people he doesn't even know. But what we have in common with them is that they are fellow disciples and followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it is an incredible expression of what Jesus is trying to teach us, love for disciples. Now, but I submit to you, I submit to you, as great as what Glenn Beck and other Christians are doing, and I thank God for them, as great as that is, let me say something. It is easier to love and to serve Christians halfway around the world who are facing death than to love and to serve the one that's sitting right next to you right now. Now let that sink in for just a moment. As great as what Beck is doing and other Christians are doing, it is so much easier to do that, to love them, than it is to love the person that is sitting next to you who is also a follower of Jesus Christ. Why is that? Because you know that person. Because you know their frailties. Because you know when they're stupid. Because you know what they've said and what they've done in the past. And, and you know, and you know, and you know. And it's easier for us to love from a distance believers in Christ from around the world than it is to love the person sitting next to you. But when Jesus says, you do this to one another, he's not talking about it from half the way around the world. You can't wash someone's feet, feet who lives halfway around the world. He says that brother and sister in Christ that worships with you, that brother and sister in Christ that lives in the community with you is a part of that same body of believers with you. You love them as I've loved you. Mm. And take the towel and serve one another. There's so much more we have to say. I'm going to let my brother close us out. But let me say this, though. Derek made a statement last week, and, and I wasn't here, but I, I heard it. He said, the only time the statement, how can the church serve me, is appropriate, 
is when it's Jesus that's asking the question. How often do we think, well, you know, they ought to be doing this for me. They ought to be serving me. That's, not, that's an inappropriate question. That's an inappropriate statement. It's never appropriate. You ought to be asking, we ought to be asking, how can I serve them? How can I serve them? The only time that question is appropriate is when it's Jesus is asking, how is the body of Christ going to serve me? Amen. Wrap us up, Dad. Radical disciples leave and cleave, they love and lift. Finally, they live and light. What do I mean by that? I mean that radical disciples live their lives and in doing so, light their world. Jesus said in Matthew 5.14, the verse from which we actually get our name as a church, he says, you are the light of the world. A city set upon a hill cannot be hidden. In other words, go into the world full of darkness, controlled by Satan, riddled with sin, and by the way that you live your life, light it up. By the way that you love the discipler and love the disciples. Everything that James just said. You can't, be, you can't keep from being a light if you love Jesus like that and serve one another like that, that's going to be a light. You're going you to be can't a light. Stop it. Now, what does light do? Light dispels darkness. Darkness is, is merely the absence of light. And so when we live out this, it is dispelling darkness in this world. The question is, what kind of darkness? Quickly, I'll do a few of them. Number one, we dispel intellectual darkness. So humanity is filled with a great deal of knowledge, a great deal of intellectual knowledge. We have technology today that was virtually unheard of five years ago. We have the, the level of, of technological advancement is happening at a frightening rate right now. We have and more, to those of us that are technologically challenging, it's difficult. Challenge, that's very scary. <laughs> <laughs> we have, I'm still trying to figure out email. <laughs> how, how, to, how to use your phone. We have more information at the tip of our fingers than we've ever had before, and the ability to transmit, uh, transmit that data almost instantaneously to almost anywhere in the world. But with all of the knowledge that we acquire, with all of the advancement that we have, man is still in darkness. Why? Because it comes down to how we answer three primary questions. Three, this is actually, these are three fundamental questions that we talk about in the field of education, Christian education. What is truth? Who defines it? And am I accountable to it? Those three questions would serve you so well to answer for yourself because they fundamentally shape the way that you engage with and interpret every other source of information. If your answers are more postmodern in their, in their look, then you might say something like, well, truth is whatever, whatever it is that resonates within me at the time. And, and it comes from inside of me or, or from some other, you know, uh, some, sort of, some sort of other thing in the world, some other source in the world. And, and I'm not bound to it because it's ever-changing. And, and so I'm going to just live my truth and you live your truth and, and we'll just kind of change with the times. If, if you answer those questions that way versus truth is objective and unchanging, it's defined by God, and that I'm accountable to it, whether I acknowledge it or not, we are going to be ships passing in the night. Mm -hmm. So understand, we're called to dispel intellectual darkness. Some people get very freaked out by that word intellectual. You're like, I'm not an intellectual, I don't think a lot, I'm not, I'm not smart, I'm not whatever. Have you ever considered, though, Jesus' words in the great commandment, the so-called great commandment? What does he say the first and greatest commandment is? That you shall love the Lord your God with what? All of your heart and with all of your soul and what? And with all of your mind. Whatever amount of it you've got. Yeah, whatever mind. Yeah, exactly. 
You, you don't have to be Albert Einstein. You don't have to be some great, brilliant thinker. You love God with all of your mind. That's why Paul says, be transformed by what? The renewing of your mind. I'm reading a book right now, I just finished it, that talks about how we engage with other sources as Christians. And, and what this, the author's name is James Sire. What he says is we are to read Scripture and then let Scripture guide our thinking when we read everything else. Right. And, and so often, Christians are, are guilty of the exact opposite of that. We read everything else, and we let those things dictate the way we read the Bible. Or we don't read the or Bible. Or don't read the Bible. <laughs> yeah. That is wrong. That's backwards. The Bible is meant to instruct, inform, and shape our thoughts, and then we take those instructed, informed, and shaped thoughts into whatever else it is that we are reading. Mm. The question is, are you reading the Bible? Are you studying the Bible? Do you realize that we have multiple opportunities throughout the week for you to gain more knowledge and structure in the Scripture? Will you take it? We dispel intellectual darkness. It's one of the things we do as light in the world. We dispel moral darkness. Now, I don't think I need to talk a whole lot about this, but then again, I have had to have several conversations this past year with Christians on why it is um, morally not okay to align yourself with an agenda that is okay with murdering babies by the millions. So uh, let me just say this quickly. that Which is an error that is rampant in the church in America. Right? And, and by the way, it's an error that has been in discussion since at least uh, St. Ambrosiaster in the 4th century. So uh, for whatever that's worth, you church history people, this has been going on for Christians have been standing centuries. for yes. life yes. from the very beginning. One of the things we do is dispel moral darkness. How do we do that? By upholding biblical standards in our own lives. It doesn't mean forcing other non-Christians to do it. It means living it out ourselves. And third, there is spiritual darkness. This is the real problem at hand. This is the really the thing that, that, that is behind moral and, and intellectual and sociological problems is spiritual darkness. This is the real key. Jesus says in 1 John 2.11, but whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in darkness and does not know where he's going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. Mm. The unbelieving world is in spiritual darkness. They cannot see the light of the gospel. And understand this, they're not just blind to it, they are being blinded to it by Satan. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4.4, in their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel. This is a fight, folks. That's what Paul is saying here. Right. Is that when you are a light in the world, you're not just like kind of going about your business and, oh, everything is fine. No, you're at war. Mm -hmm. You are at war against the prince of the power of the air, the prince of darkness, blinding people around you. It is a fight. It's why Paul says we don't war against flesh and blood, but against rulers and authorities and cosmic powers. Understand that Christianity, that following Jesus, is not about just putting on your nice clothes and your little Jesus face and coming to church. It's about girding yourself up with the gospel, loving Jesus above everything else, loving people the way Jesus tells you to, and going to war. Amen. Swimming and upstream. Swimming upstream. Jesus never calls us to swim downstream. Making the choice. Making the commitment. Being held accountable by the commitment. Loving him and then loving and serving others as an example to the world. The question is, will you do it? The light will be as bright as we collectively decide to be. You go into DFW 30 miles out, you can see DFW from a pretty far distance. You drive into Elkhart where Refuge Ranch is, 
You can't even see where you're going when you're in Elkhart. <laughs> because there's not that many lights. We will only be as bright as we decide to be collectively. The question is, will you be a light? Will you be a radical disciple? Let's pray. Father, thank you for an opportunity and a challenge, God, to be reminded of, of what is at stake and, and, and what the cost is to follow you. Forgive us for ever thinking that we are anything. And forgive us for ever prioritizing ourselves and our own dumb desires above you. God, I pray that we would be humbled by that. In the same way that you humbled yourself to the form of a servant, that we would humble ourselves and serve others by loving them the way you showed us. And being an example and a light in a dark world, God. We thank you. We praise you, and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. God bless you. Have a great week, and be safe. Be safe. But don't be scared. <laughs>